I-94 on Lumpen Radio. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of I-94 right here on WLPN, Lumpen Radio from Chicago. My name is Mr. Jamie Trecker. As always, I am joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Good morning. And Mr. Michael Sack. Hey, Jamie. Today, we are pleased to be joined by local author William Hazelgrove. He has a new book out from the Lions Press. It is called Sally Rand, American Sex Symbol. William, thanks for joining us this morning. No, thanks for having me. Really, really appreciate it. I think, you know, for the uh, listeners who might not know who Sally Rand is, uh, she is a person of a specific age. Let's start there. Who, who is Sally Rand, William, and why should we know about her? Well, in a nutshell, she's the woman who crashed the 1933 World's Fair and became instantly famous as this woman who danced behind giant ostrich feathers and... Uh, you know, what's more amazing than that is that she actually took that moment and launched a 40-year career where she stayed culturally relevant all the way up until her death in the in the late 70s. Um, and along the way, she you know, appeared on m- many movies. She was actually a silent movie star. Uh, she had her own television shows. She had her own radio shows. But more than that, she was sort of this cultural... Zircon that shot across America as America developed in the early 20th century as the whole media industry developed. She developed along with it, uh, culminating actually in the early 60s when she danced for the Apollo astronauts at the opening of the Houston, uh, at actually Houston Astrodome, where now the Houston Coliseum, uh, where they inaugurated mission control. So this is just sort of a thumbnail, but um, you know, she's one of these people in history who few people have heard of some some people may have but in in actual fact she definitely belongs in our sort of cultural historical ideology so just to back up for a second she started out of course this Sally Rand, uh, for people who are not familiar with her backstory uh, grew up in Missouri she was a poor girl from the Ozarks and she initially made her name, as you mentioned in the book, in silent films. Uh, Cecil B. DeMille called her the most beautiful woman in Hollywood. And one of the things that's striking to me in your book, William, is that she actually was a a pretty decent actress, uh, but like so many women in her era, she could not make the transition to talkies. And I kind of wanted to start there because it strikes me that someone who had the um, cojones, let's say, to stand up in front of 100,000 people naked uh, at the Chicago World's Fair here in our city, I thought it was strange that, you know, you mentioned in the book that she lacked the kind of confidence to make that transition and as a result went from someone who was, a again, uh, an up-and-comer in, in the early days of film to someone who uh, is really kind of, rec- you know, remembered now as a member of a burlesque performance, and she wasn't even a burlesque performer. Could you address that a little bit? Because I think that's kind of psychologically interesting about her. Yeah, um, she had a terrible speaking voice to begin with, and when uh, Al Jolson, the jazz singer, came along, and she had to do a sound test. She had an Ozark accent and a lisp. So she was out. And, you know, Sally ran, uh, for your listeners, had a strange ability to put herself in the middle of what was happening, you know, which also brings to that whole thing of fame. Why does fame touch some people and and not others? So, so her career crashes. She's, uh, it's the worst year of the Great Depression, 1933. She's sleeping in alleys. Uh, she's broke. And yet, yet there is this fair coming, this 1933 World's Fair, Century of Progress in Chicago. And this is going to be her moment to, to, to relaunch herself. But, but you're absolutely right. Cecil, Cecil B. Mills changes her name to Sally Rand um, from Harriet Beck. She's essentially a hillbilly. And she, she you know, her, her career just, just is totally destroyed by the talkies. And yet she's now going to do this one thing that's going to turn her life around and immortalize her forever. William, you want to talk a little bit about the World's Fair and how important this was in this time, because I don't think we can grasp, you know, in this day of where we, you know, have the internet and sports and things like that to occupy our time. But I mean, the World's Fair was a huge deal. Can you talk about that a little bit? Oh, yeah. Uh, Yeah, great question. Yeah, the World's Fair uh, of 33, World's Fairs in general, were 
the television, the Netflix of their time, you could not uh, just reach out and get entertainment. You were stuck in your town. Only 10% of the people owned the car. Nobody flew. So, so the World's Fair introduced you to the, a much bigger world and an exotic world. And Chicago, being Chicago, um, you know, had planned this thing for 10 years. Well, here comes, you know, this, this terrible Great Depression. Chicago was devastated. You know, and I wrote another book, Al Capone and the 33 World's Fair. Um, and, and this book spun off from that. Um, and, and they had gangsta, you know, they had Al Capone. They, nobody wanted to come to Chicago. And yet they had this fair in just this horrible year, no money. Nobody has any money to spend on it. And, you know, the thought is, well, maybe this will jumpstart the economy. Um, but, you know, and it's a cute question. Yes, these were actually World's Fairs. This is where people from all over the world would come there, like sort of moss to a light. You know, uh, just to give you an example, Judy Garland, um, she was there. Of course, she's not famous yet because she won't become famous till 39 um, for The Wizard of Oz. But she's there with her sister, her sister and her mother. They have a horrible singing and dancing act. Her words, not mine. And um, she gets on a fight with her mother and leaves the World's Fair. Um, goes to the Biograph Theater, why? Because it's air conditioned, sees a guy she thinks is famous, asks him for his autograph. He shot dead three hours later in the alleys, John Dillinger, which shows you a couple of things. One is that everybody came to these things and, and you know, culturally they were the center. So Sally Rand being there at this time was serendipitous, but also it was something a certain kind of person could only take advantage of. I actually mark that up in the book about Judy Garland meeting Dillinger, I was going to ask you if that was, uh, if, if there's a documentation on that or if that's just a, perhaps a legend, but that is true, huh? That actually comes from a radio interview she gave 20 years later. Oh, okay. Where she tells that story. And it does sound, you know, like hy hyperbole, but um, in actual fact, uh, you know, she was struggling along with everybody else and, uh, you know, everybody wanted a job at the World's Fair. And so Sally Rand, who was dancing at the Paramount Club, um, you know, she had actually, uh, she was sleeping in an alley. She um, had this tryout coming up. And so she stops in a secondhand store on State Street and gets these uh, feathers, these huge seven foot ostrich feathers and goes down and tries out. Her outfit doesn't fit. And the woman next to her says, why don't you just go on naked? And so she does. And just so your listeners know, this is not, Sally Rand was not just this woman who's, okay, I'm going to be naked behind these feathers, maybe I can get people interested. She actually wanted to be a ballerina at one point, and, and her dance is based on Pavlov's Dying Swan, which was, you know, this Russian ballerina who she'd seen as a little girl. So, and, and the essence of the dance is, is death, you know, which is, you know, life rises up and then death. And, and so when she uh, does this dance, people, you know, are transported to a degree. We can talk about that a little more. Um, but uh, anyway, she gets a job at the Paramount and then she sets her sights on the World's Fair. And, you know, that's a good, I actually wanted to ask you about that because so much of Sally Rand's career starts out here in Chicago. Uh, and of course, you know, we're, we're homers. So, you know, we uh, should mention that. But what was interesting to me is Chicago at that time, as you mentioned, was was pretty rough and tumble, and uh, it was also fairly dangerous. And it was also a place that, if I recall, had fairly strict vice laws. I mean, some of these laws are, are still in effect today. I'm not sure you can actually walk down the street naked with some feathers covering you. What was it about this particular situation? Was it desperation that, that pushed her to do this? Because, you know, before... Sally Rand, the artist, and I, we should tell listeners, you know, uh, William's right. Sally did become a major cultural figure. This was not looked at as a, a kind of smutty burlesque. Oh, it was yeah. looked at as as actual art and, and a real thing. She was widely photographed. The fans were widely photographed. And, and, and you know, you make the point of the book, William, it, it probably changed people's mores of, of our time. But can you take us back to this particular moment in Chicago history? Because what she was doing was not only illegal, but, but probably dangerous. Yeah. Um, right. So she, as you say, she's working at this Paramount Club and, you know, gangsters, including Al Capone, and, uh, are drifting in and out. Um, and so at this point, you know, her fan dance is, is essentially just, you know, taking place in this sort of strip club arena. Now, the thing that changes it 
is after she tries to go to the World's Fair, they go, no, we don't need you. She hatches a plan. She gets a boat. She paints her body white. She gets a white horse. On the opening night of the World's Fair, all the muckety-mucks are there. You know, it's there's a stage. Um, and so Sally ran, and for your listeners, the World's Fair took place on what's today called Northern Island. So it's actually off the, the edge of the shore of Chicago. And so on the night of this fair, she puts the horse on the boat, the boat, and they go around to the back of a yacht landing. Um, she gets off and she has nothing on but this uh, a cape and this white, white makeup, gallops through the Chicago World's Fairgrounds up to the stage, the horse jumps up onto the stage, rears up, all these photographers take her picture, they go, oh my God, a naked woman on a white horse, it's the opening of the Chicago World's Fair. She's immediately arrested and then immediately hired. And, and this is what's hard to believe. She becomes the number one financial draw of the Chicago World's Fair, literally taking the fair from the red into the black. Now, coming out of all this, all right, she becomes famous overnight. Um, and the question is, why did people line up to see her? Um, you know, you have her doing 17 dances a day, seven minutes a piece, and people just can't get enough of it. Well, this gets very interesting because really what they're seeing is this woman dancing to Brahms under a blue light uh, with these feathers. And, you know, today we can turn on our television and we're gone. You know, we, we can escape the pandemic for a while. We, we, but people couldn't do that in 1933. But when they went in there for those seven minutes, they were gone. It was, you know, it was hope. It was escapism. And then Sally Rand, who started to make $5,000 a week as a dancer in depression or dollars, became this sort of rags to riches story. And, you know, I might as well add this. She had this strange girl next quality, uh, girl next door quality to her that, that people could relate to as well. So you, you put all this together, you put it into the World's Fair motif, which had a, a mother load of media that made her literally famous overnight. And you have this strain combustion, which produces fame. It's amazing. Let's take a quick break here and actually hear a passage from uh, William's book. Again, it is Sally Rand. It's out now from the Lions Press. As always, we want to thank Shanna Van Volt, our reader, and we want to thank Jeff Parker, our musician today, and the International Anthem Recording Company. Uh, we are speaking with William Hazelgrove, and we're going to be right back after we hear a selection from his book. Up to now, Sally had never taken her clothes off for anyone on stage, but the ads she saw in the newspaper on State Street gave her hope. Wanted, exotic acts and dancers. Apply Paramount Club. The other dancers from Sweethearts on Parade showed up too. Sally was so broke, she was later quoted as saying it was either this or prostitution. It is hard to know if she was serious, but she was desperate. The red light district of Chicago on South State Street was a short distance from the fair. The burlesque theaters featured programs of comic skits, films, strip acts, singing, and dancing. Surprisingly, both men and women went to these shows and paid from 10 to 25 cents at the senior sites and 175 at the classier venues. Women often made up one-third of the audience, but both sexes wanted to escape the grinding reality of the Great Depression into some sort of fantasy. The Chicago police looked the other way and allowed the striptease to make its appearance. At bottom, burlesque was a way for women to make money, and this is what Sally Rand had in mind as she stood in the back of the Paramount. She had no way of knowing it, but the times had changed, and the fact that she had no costume and only two ostrich feather fans worked in her favor. The shift in attitudes towards drinking, smoking, wearing makeup, and experiencing premarital sex culminated in heightened emphasis on eroticism. Some would say Sally's decision to go out and dance nude behind two four-foot fans had roots far back in her own psychological makeup, that she had no alternative at that point and literally nothing to lose. A dozen other chorus girls in the same predicament were looking for a spot at the Paramount. She saw two other dancers from Sweethearts, and they had all lined up on stage and did a walk across earlier in the day. Big Ed Callahan, the owner, shook his head. Girls, business here in the Loop is taking a nosedive. We have to come up with something to get the customers in. We've all got to eat this year. If you want the job, come in with your costume at 10 o'clock tonight. That's all. The two dancers before her had asked Sally what she was going to wear, and Sally confessed she didn't know. The two ostrich feather fans were her only chance. When Sally arrived, the Paramount was deserted. She went into a dressing room and saw five girls getting ready. As Holly Knox writes in Sally Rand from film to fans, a woman putting on fake eyelashes patted the dressing table next to her. This one is yours, honey, and I hope you're ready because curtain is in ten. 
And in fact, that was a selection from William's book, where we're speaking with William Hazelgrove. He is the author of Sally Rand, American Sex Symbol. It is out now from Lions Press. We were just talking before that passage, and in fact, that passage was about how Sally actually got a tryout at the Paramount Club. William mentioned this uh, earlier on about how she was encouraged to actually take the stage naked. The World's Fair, as you were talking about just before we heard that, William, Sally Rand was making $5,000 a week, and that is around, what, $25,000 in, in modern money, I think. Uh, my, my math is bad, but I mean, that would be a tremendous amount of money for a young woman uh, from Missouri who, you know, just weeks before was sleeping in the alley. There's one thing you mentioned about Sally, however, in the book, and this is going to dog her for the rest of her life. And I, I have to ask you about this because I think this also goes a little bit to her psychology. Sally Rand had a hard time paying her bills and uh, left a trail of creditors all over the place. But she was also taking care of her family members as well. You mentioned in the book that her father and mother uh, really could not have survived without you know what Sally was doing. And she had a lot of properties, uh, or she would get a lot of properties around America. Can you talk a little bit about this? Because this is a recurring motif in her life. And um, it would catch up with her. And one of the things that I thought was very strange was that, you know, she she did have an enormous amount of income and yet was never able to really become financially secure, which led her to have this almost Quaker work ethic. You know, you mentioned even later in life, she was working 40 weeks a year at 60. You know, she was putting on go-go boots and, and dancing in clubs in, in bowling alleys in, in Hartford, Connecticut with Ann Corio. You know, yeah. I mean, so, you know, nobody has ever suggested that Ms. Rand was was not a grueler. You know, she was a hard worker. But what was it about her makeup that, that made it so difficult to actually enjoy the riches and the fame she gained? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. It, you know, it's always interesting we see people who are, are famous because we always, you know, associate fame and fortune. But unfortunately, they really don't follow the two. You know, she made an enormous amount of money. You're right. But it was limited. She she can only cash in for a while, which is also very much what we see today. Um, and here's the thing. She was doing this at a time when women had about two vocations open to them, secretary, maybe a nurse, maybe a teacher. That was it. Sally Rand took that on, turned it all on its head. She, she not only created this act, she monetized it, then she managed it. So, so you know, she, she was doing things that nobody had done before. You know, there was a movie out called The Gold Diggers at the time, which had the whole motif of Right, the Gold Diggers uh, of 1933. There was a it was a movie series for people that don't know. There there was a series of films. Not to cut you off, William, but sure. uh, it is actually you can see it on Turner Classic Movies. It happens to be available this month. The entire Gold Digger series, and it was it was a huge success. I believe Doris Day was involved in that, and Ann right. Sheridan, right, uh, the original Oomph Girl. So, uh, if folks are curious more about what William's talking about, you you can actually go on and see it on Turner Classic this month. Right. And, and, and so the, the motif is working class girl snags rich husband. Well, she turned that on its head and she was essentially the rich woman. And so, you know, she married horribly three husbands who none of them worked. They all drained her. And as she said before, she she was supporting her family in, in basically in Hollywood. They'd all moved there. And and so, you know, she had nobody to really manage what she was doing. And Sally ran like to live large. She had multiple cars, multiple properties, uh, you know, and then when she was on the road, she had to finance, you know, transportation. She, she had a band, she had other dancers. So, so, you know, she had to expend a lot of capital and, you know, with a lot of people who are famous, people assume that they are rich. And that was very much Sally Rand. So her, the hanger ons, if you will, her, her family and others and these husbands, all just sort of ran through her money and she did not pay her bills. And she was continually being sued by people uh, for various reasons. Uh, you know, she was being sued by promoters who she would stiff. Uh, she was being sued by people she attacked uh, physically. Uh, she she was had this sort of personality that just would get into these altercations. She liked um, to bite people and, too, correct? Wasn't that the... Did, right. Yeah. Well, yeah. When, when it really bites. got down to it, a few bites in there. I remember that struck me as kind of crazy. But. Well, not yeah. to mention the all the arrests, the fines from the arrests too. Um, it, you know, it, we've been talking about her her act, but Sally Rand, from what I gathered in your book, was was a really bright woman. 
sharp, clever, uh, really well read. And, um, you know, she, she also uh, parlayed her fame into to a speaking circuit, right? Can you talk a little bit about that? She spoke at Harvard. Yeah, great question. Um, you know, you, just when you think, okay, here's this woman who, who's just this uh, fan dancer, she gets invited to speak to Harvard, the freshman class. And she goes in and speaks on being an entrepreneur. Um, and then, you know, she, she speaks to all these women's groups that are also, um, uh, you know, sort of up on the North Shore of Chicago. And, um, and you know, she, if you look at pictures of her, she looks like a little businesswoman. Um, so she had this ability to morph herself. She was not stupid. She, she went um, through, she didn't finish high school, but she was, you know, self-educated. She did read, read a bit. And, and so, but she also had the ability to recreate herself and, you know, get paid for it. Um, and, and so, you know, these were other sides of her that allowed her to jump from 1933 and, you know, cover this 40 years uh, of sort of in the entertainment industry and stay culturally relevant and keep making money. And she, she also was a trained pilot, right? Yeah. Did she have her own pilot license? Yeah. You know, which, yeah. was, which was amazing. She, she, did, yeah. she dated Lindbergh. really strange. I mean, she had this pilot's license. She dated Charles Lindbergh. This is a time when nobody flew. Uh, she was in a horrible plane crash and walked away from it. She was in several uh, car, car uh, accidents, you know, that were just really bad. One involved a train. She walked away from those. Wow. Um, she, you know, and I should mention that she... You know, she was only five foot tall and she was incredibly athletic and she was fearless when she she ran away from the circus to get oh, to Hollywood. Right. She, she became a trapeze artist. Yeah. <laughs> then when she got to Hollywood, she made her name in Max Senate films, which were those you know films you see where people are driving off cliffs and in front of trains. And she would jump off a high dive into a 15 foot tank. Um, and, and this is very much what allowed Sally Ram to sort of break into you know other areas people wouldn't i mean she was very athletic uh but more than all that she was fearless and it reminds me you know burt lancaster was the same way he came from the circus he was a well-known trapeze artist and and sort of contemporary with rand uh and doing those same kind of films before he became burt lancaster you know he was an extremely athletic person you know it's interesting because one of the things i kept thinking when i was reading this book is that the other thing that Rand had that I don't think people necessarily gave her credit for was a tremendous amount of charm. Uh, you mentioned a number of times when she was arrested on indecency charges. Uh, there was a case where a judge uh, went and actually saw her performance and said, you know, uh, if this is indecent, then the indecency laws are wrong. You know what I mean? Right. She seemed to have a tremendous amount of personal charisma and, uh, and it, it, it strikes me, and I think, you know, maybe this is kind of what you're getting at, because, I mean, the title of the book is American Sex Symbol, and you do talk about other people such as Mae West, and I want to get to that after the break. But one of the things that I think you, you're hinting at, at least in the book, and I, I wonder if you could talk about it a little bit, is the fact that Rand's kind of sheer gumption, rags to riches, bootstrapping kind of persona and personality made her kind of an authentic blue collar sex symbol at a time when other movie stars and i'm I'm thinking specifically of may west greta garbo who were also these sex symbols in american culture were unapproachable sally rand was somebody that that was approachable she was doing something that was uh risque and and you know uh, stripping is not exactly what we call a high class job even today where it might be a respected job but it's you know not high class i would say and yet you know she was able to parlay that into uh, a personal fortune and tremendous uh respect from america yeah yeah uh, actually you're right on there um she was sort of a proletarian uh hero in that sort of horatio alger mode of rags to riches where she did come up from the bottom. She was a hillbilly. Um, you know, Mae West and others were plugged into Hollywood. I mean, Mae West died a very, very wealthy woman. Sally Rand will die penniless. Um, and Sally Rand could never escape basically the manual labor of those fans. Every time she tried to do something else, she had to go back to it to make money. So she was always in the the the, you know, the gritty fairgrounds, the sort of dusty fairgrounds of America, going town to town to town. You know, the, the 61 boxes 
of Sally Rand's papers are in the Chicago History Museum, and that's what I used. And in there are letters from her from all over the country. Um, and they're sort of sad because she's always writing from a different hotel. This woman used Benzedrine, smoked habitually, drank uh, to keep going for these 40 some years because she could never get off the road. You know, she always had this fantasy of becoming a sort of middle-class family, uh, sort of having this middle-class family life and leaving the fans. Or she always saw herself as a movie star who one day she would return to Hollywood, which in fact she did. And she got back there. They made a film around her called Murder on Sunset uh, Boulevard. And it was horrible. I watched it um, because she can't talk. I mean, the movie was terrible. It it's a, it's a dreadful movie. It's 1938. Yeah, it's awful. Yeah. Yeah, it came out when Gone with the Wind came out. But the, the point of it is, is that, yes, she was very much of the working class. And that set her aside from other, you know, famous stars of her time like Mae West. William, I wanted to talk about, and so the book opens up and Sally is bobbing in Lake Michigan um, in, in the prologue. Can you tell us, tell our readers about that, our, our readers, us and our listeners about that story, how Sally ended up in the lake. readers, right? Um, <laughs> well, hopefully yeah. our listeners are readers. Yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's true. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Use it interchangeably. Um, yeah, uh, you know, I kind of took that moment. What happened was, after the first year of the World's Fair, 1933 ends, well, basically the World's Fair is like, you know, you're kind of smutty. We don't want you to come back here next year. So she's like, fine, I'm leaving. And she gets in a boat at night to head up to Evanston to give a speech. The boat takes a turn and she flips out the back and the boat doesn't see her flip out and keeps going. So she's bobbing around in Lake Michigan uh, and she can literally see the skyline. She can see the fair. And, you know, she's at this point where she's become world famous. Uh, the, you know, the world is her oyster. And yet she's, you know, in danger of drowning and she's sort of floating around. And finally, finally, the uh, Coast Guard, uh, you know, fishes her out and she sits in the, a lifeguard station. Um, and uh, there's a picture of her from the Chicago Tribune where they snap a photo of her and you see this young 29 year old girl who looks like a child sitting wrapped in a blanket, you know, sipping some coffee. And, and this is very much Sally Rand because things would happen to her that could be disastrous for other people and she would come out and just be fine. And, you know, one thing I found when I write a lot of these books from Teddy Roosevelt on is there is that thing called destiny. And, you know, it definitely touches people. Uh, same with fame. You know, there was a woman named Faith Bacon who uh, sued Sally Rand for a million bucks. And because she said she invented the, the uh, fan dance and Sally Rand stole it. Well, Faith Bacon came to the World's Fair, set up across from Sally Rand to do the same act and nobody came to see her. Why? Because she wasn't Sally Rand. And therein lies the question of fame. Why is this magic dust fall on some people and not others? And we see this all the time. Yeah. And this is a good point, actually, to stop. Uh, we do need to remind folks of the folks that make the station possible. Uh, we're going to be back after the break with more with author William Hazelgrove. Again, our book today is Sally Rand, American Sex Symbol. It's out from the Lions Press. And we'll be right back after these short messages. You're listening to I-94. And now back to I-94 on Lumpin Radio. Sally Rand had found a new audience. As one paper put it in describing her show, as usual, a good percentage of the audience was composed of business executives and prominent men's clubs officials and politicians who came to applaud their entertainer. Professional men wanted to see Sally Rand and she was booked into convention shows where lascivious men after a few drinks could watch the most famous sex symbol in America. People were going to movies and vaudeville was fading into history, but Sally Rand kept cashing in on her newfound fame. She headed from New York City for a booking at the NTG Paradise Cafe. She used her bubble and danced to Moonlight Sonata. She would stay 18 weeks and then organized a bevy of showgirls heading onto the road. Sigfield had died the year before and many of the girls she used were former dancers from the Follies. In 1936, she entered into a financial contract with the owner of the Music Box Burlesque Hall in San Francisco and brought new life to the old hall with her extravagant star-studded review with 16 performers and herself. She was then booked into the San Diego Exposition in Balboa Park. This was close to Glendora and lasted a full year. It made sense to replay the success of the Chicago World's Fair with a similar venue. 
Her bubble dance was enhanced by an outdoor arena in front of a pool that reflected back. She was so close to the audience, a little old lady tried to burn her leg with a cigarette. A nudist colony protested her appearance, but it reeked of a publicity setup with the nudists parading around the fair and sandwich boards. But it always added to the box office revenue. Sally Rand knew one thing very well. Any publicity was good publicity. She branched out into more speaking engagements, speaking to ladies groups, colleges, and even the state legislature of Illinois. She hosted a dog show, a baby beauty pageant, and even a corn husking competition. Sally talked of being an actress and constantly pushed back on her Ozark roots and the fact that she took off her clothes for a living. Being a stripper did not fit the image she wished to project in her conservative dresses, gloves, and hats. The fans had gotten to her to where she was, but she wanted to drop the wings like extra ballast. But the reality was her fame at the World's Fair had launched her in a way that she didn't even understand. She had seeped into the cultural consciousness of America in a way that left behind every stripper and every ballet show in America. The fan dance was nothing until it was launched on the mega platform of the Chicago World's Fair of 1933 that transformed Sally Rand into something else. This was something the fan dance could not achieve in a strip club. Still, the public was fickle and Sally performed 71 out of 78 days. Hard to know how much Benzedrine Sally Rand actually used. In 1933, it was marketed as a decongestion. People took out the paper strip inside the inhaler and swallowed it for the euphoric effect. Companies caught on and produced benzedrine sulfate in a tablet form. Benzedrine was marketed to cure narcolepsy, obesity, low blood pressure, or pain. It would later be given to combat troops in World War II and Vietnam to cure kids of laziness or neurological disorders. Sally Rand would use it to cure fatigue. She was in her 30s, and it eventually became her drug of choice along with the nicotine from chain smoking. And there were hazards. A serviceman tried to lift her dress and bite her. Another audience member shot nails at her. She was banned from one show in Providence by a minister who saw her as a moral degenerate. The money flowed in and flowed out. A lot of it went to the ranch in Glendora. Her mother and stepfather could not make it without Sally. She had a Filipino servant named Alfredo and two Pekingese dogs, Snoofy and China Boy. Pictures in newspapers during the time show a successful young woman stepping off planes, taking interviews, sitting on a couch. She has a Lincoln Continental, a trailer, a ranch. She is making it outwardly, but she is leaving a landscape of unpaid bills. The lawyers are very polite, as this is before the giant bill collection companies. The letters follow her as she makes her way across the country. A dog kennel wants $150. An airline wants to be paid. A florist. A club in St. Louis wants $250. Some of the letters begin to get nasty. I suppose you consider that you have shaken me. I am convinced that everything you promised me was part of a scheme or plan to avoid paying me. I've never been treated so shabbily by any client. Welcome back to I-94, everybody. As always, I am Mr. Jamie Trecker. I am joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Hello. And Mr. Michael Sack. Hey. And you just heard an excerpt from William Hazelgrove's book, Sally Rand, American Sex Symbol. And we've been in conversation with William today, and we're going to continue on right now. William, uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, and you were kind of hinting at it before the break, um, being a sex symbol is kind of a double-edged sword. You know, I was I was thinking kind of in the run-up to this show, I was thinking it about It really people, is. I can tell you. It's a, it's a double-edged sword yeah. living this life. Living this life, Jeremy? It's tough. <laughs> I was thinking of people like Betty Page, uh, Betty Grable, Jane Mansfield, Farrah Fawcett, all these – Brooke Shields, all, all these people from various eras who were kind of held up as, as sex symbols, unlike poor Jeremy here, uh, but who had profoundly unhappy lives and, and in some cases uh, had very bad things happen to them. Can you talk a little bit about this? Because, you know, Sally, uh, as we said at the very start of the show – again, had an almost Quaker-like work ethic, and she would continue to do this for, for four decades, working 40 hours a week. She, she really never gave up. But the, the thing that kind of goes through your book is that even though she was elevated to this platform, she, she rarely was a happy person. She always had to kind of keep going. Can you talk a, bit, a little bit about that, about that William? Yeah. Um, well, you bring up a great point. You know, the, it, you know, the life of fame and fortune is, is littered with all these crash and burn stories. And I mentioned Faith Bacon before because she she was a sex symbol of her time too. Uh, and she ended up in 1954 jumping out of a hotel room, uh, you know, committing suicide, broke, uh, sleeping in alleys and such. Sally Rand, uh, to her credit, um, did she have a happy life? Um, I'm not sure she, she wouldn't call it a happy life. She, I think she's you know, did what she set out to do, which was become uh, famous. And, um, you know, because uh, she approached it like a business, uh, she approached it with that supercharged Puritan work ethic that she had, um, she, she survived. 
um, where others did not. And, you know, she, she would get up and, and, and she worked it every single day of her life. And, and the fact of the matter, she couldn't get off the treadmill because the money would stop. Um, and, you know, she had her own vices to, to cope. Again, she used a lot of Benzedrine um, to keep going. Um, and, you know, she drank a bit and, and just, you know, it was a hard, grueling life. And, um, and you know, she, she had a heart attack and didn't tell anybody, uh, you know, she yeah. got older um, and she literally danced up, you know, to the week before she died. Um, so I, I would say that in one sense, you know, she had a great quote where she said, you know, um, I haven't done any, anything really profound with my life, but I'm not sure people who do profound things know it either. So, you know, it's sort of bittersweet. She would write poetry at night, uh, write letters to herself uh, in these lonely uh, hotel rooms, uh, sort of lamenting the roads not taken. You know, she had a son, but it really wasn't her son. It was a stripper's, uh, another stripper's son who she could never really adopt because the adoption agency would never give her the boy. He finally made her its guardian when he was 18. Uh, again, three husbands each one worse than the one before, a radio cowboy, a rogue manager, a boy toy at the end, um, all of them end in divorce, all of them drainer of money. So I, I can't say she had this great happy life, but she did have the life of, if not the rich and famous, the famous. It was, it was a full life to me. And it's interesting, that quote you mentioned, you, you, uh, you opened the book with it, and it's mentioned later on in the context of the book. She seemed... It, you were talking about that charisma, Jamie, and the, and the charm she had. But it seemed like she she had that attitude that's uh, very much, I think, identified with Midwestern regionality. We talked about it on our show mm. a few weeks ago. That that she didn't seem to like talking about herself. She didn't want to build that that glow, that cloud of uh, fame around her with her own words. Do you think? Well, one, do you think that was true, William? And two, do you think that hurt her in a way that put her in a position where she had to grind it out? Yeah, she, you know, there's a, there's a clip of her in 1957 on To Tell the Truth, which, as you know, probably the producers can only put people on there that the audience will recognize because all kicker of the show is to have somebody on there that people have heard of but who may not be famous as they were before, but it's like, well, what happened to this person? And so then the people in the audience all try and guess who it is. And, and the panelists guess who it is. And this one had Rob Reiner on it of all people. And uh, so you know, they guess it's Sally Rand. And when they introduce Sally Rand, she stands up, says, well, I'm, I'm, you know, Helen Beck of Sally Rand. And uh, she has to say a few words. She can't, she, she cannot emote. She can't, Huh. talk you would say she's shy which is an incredible thing to say about somebody who spent their life dancing naked behind ostrich feathers but for some reason her ability to put herself forward in words is is lacking this is why hollywood didn't work out after the talkies came and probably limited her to you know the, the fan dancing to becoming sort of a cultural icon of a certain kind, but never being able to morph into the other areas. You know, I want, I want to put something in context for listeners. And I, I think this is just outside a chunk of one of the readings we have on the show. In, in 1941, she was, she was center stage, so to speak, for, uh, for what's known as a Looney Tune, a cartoon for adults called Hollywood Steps Out. Tex Avery did that. Yeah. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, uh, here, here's some of the cast. James Cagney, Humphrey Bogart, Clark Gable, Bing Crosby, Jimmy Stewart, Betty Davis, uh, Greta Garbo, to name a few, you say. And and Sally, she actually had her, changed her name in the credits to Strand. I, I didn't understand. Because they, could, they couldn't use her without her permission. So they, they called her Sally Strand. Right, she, she had them. Yeah. Right, but it seemed like it would have been a good promotion for her. Maybe she thought she didn't need it. Anyway, she was the star. She was centerpiece of that show with among all those big hitters. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. And that just, I mean, that just show you, I mean, those, those Tex Avery cartoons were made for adults and here she is in Tex Avery. This was a very big one of the Hollywood steps out uh, for him. And there she is right at the center of it. And, you know, 
uh, Groucho Marx and others um, shooting off, uh, you know, things from a slingshot at her and her feathers and this and that. So, yeah, I mean, once people hit a certain level of fame, you know, we didn't talk about this, but Sally Rand was one of the first to become famous for being famous. You know, we, mm. we, we take that for granted now with Kim Kardashian and all these people. I mean, we're in the world of that now, right? I was actually going to mention the Kardashians earlier, but mm. I didn't want to. They didn't do anything. Defame Sally Rand because <laughs> Sally Rand actually had Sally talent. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, you know, it, it's, it, you bring that up, and you know that actually, um, William. The, the question I wanted to ask you, you know, you mentioned Ann Corio in your book. Right. Uh, Ann Corio, for people who don't know uh, who that was, was an old-time burlesque bump and grind uh, performer, and she's from Hartford, Connecticut. And the only reason I know who Ann Corio is is because. Uh, my mom and dad actually went to see Ann Corio. Uh, she had a long-running burlesque review called, I believe that was burlesque, in the 1960s, and it, it kind of went on forever. She also wrote a very famous book in the 1970s called How to Strip for Your Husband. There were album tie-ins. And I bring up Ann um, because Ann was somebody a bit like Sally in a way. She was somebody that had one thing that she became famous for and was able to extremely shrewdly market it. Uh, Corio again went on to have a very long-running show on Broadway. She would uh, speak and perform everywhere, and in fact, Sally uh, and Corio got injured, and Sally stepped in for Corio during a four-week run in New York City. I believe you mentioned that in the book, William, uh, and wanted to be with the show that was burlesque. But the problem was that Sally was completely unable to actually do burlesque. Burlesque is an art form that involves far more patter. It involves jokes. It involves bad jokes. It involves, you know, a, a lot more than just what Sally had done, which was dance very well behind fans. And William, I think that kind of gets to your point about Sally being famous for being famous because she... Sally managed to have a career out of this when, in fact, she was supremely limited. She couldn't talk. She really couldn't act. She didn't know burlesque, even though she was looped in as a burlesque performer. She she wasn't really even a stripper. You wouldn't put her up with Tempest Storm or you know any of the big Las Vegas bump and grind set that were so famous in the 50s and 60s. She was somebody that was f famous for once having gotten up at the World's Fair with two ostrich feathers. And yet she was able to parlay a huge career out of that. And that, to me, in the interaction you described with Ann Corio is, is really remarkable and also very telling. It's also the American yeah, dream. I mean, I, know, after she took over Corio's show, you know, after you know, Ann had surgery or whatever, um, she asked her, uh, you know, hey, look, why don't we do this as a two-woman show? Uh, you know, you know, I think it would really work well. And because Sally was desperate to get off the grind of going, and, you know, as her career morphed, you know, times changed. The 50s became conservative. A lot of times she'd go to dance. They wouldn't let her dance. She'd lose money. She was continually being arrested. What was sort of a wink before in Chicago was now actual arrest where she was in jail. Uh, the 60s came, you know, the counter-revolution, or rather the revolution, uh, the sexual revolution. She wasn't a, a shocking act anymore. She was becoming a nostalgia act. Her venues were going down to like Calumet City, uh, you know, uh, little venues, bowling alleys. Uh, so, you know, it was becoming quite the grind. And so here she is, and she's like, wow, I can get off of this. And, and what Ann Corio had managed to do was create a vehicle that provided great income and kept her from that lower level that Sally had sort of fallen to. So, you know, she, when, when Anne came back, she's like, Hey, can, can we hook up? And Anne's like, no, no, this is, this is my deal. Sorry. And Sally had to go back on the road and she was continually looking for that continually trying to get away from those fans. Uh, but unfortunately, she was sort of trapped in it. You know, she, that was the only way she could generate money, even though she'd do a deal here or there and get some money. Um, that was the, the only thing she could do is she could go back to, which, you know, she did again, when she danced for the astronauts in the Houston Coliseum, she was 60 years old. William, earlier on in the show, we were talking about um, Judy Garland and you had mentioned your, your source for that material being a, a radio interview. Several times throughout this book, you 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 mention your uh, 
you, you, you bring your research into the book um, and, and the Chicago Historical Museum and the boxes you were searching through, and there's a lot of pieces that are, are, are missing there, and, and you're very explicit about that. Uh, unfortunately, I'm not yet familiar with your other work, so I don't know if that was common for you to do in other biographies. Is that something that's um, common for you to put into the narrative, or uh, is it something you felt like you had to do with this one because there were, there were so many ambiguities? Yeah, I mean, two things. Once, you know, when you're writing narrative nonfiction, you're sort of out from behind the curtain. So, I mean, basically, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're novelizing history to a point, but, you know, it is footnoted. Now, Sally Rand, the primary source material of Sally Rand was all this material that was, you know, boxes and boxes and boxes of telegrams, uh, contracts, tons of legal letters from lawyers pursuing her for money, all sorts of things. But, you know, so in a way it could overwhelm you, but in a way it's perfect because that is Sally Rand. Sally Rand was the master of illusion. You know, she always said the Rand is quicker than the eye. Well, what is her feather dance but illusion? You know, you're not quite sure, is she naked? Is she not? And what is this? Why does this ethereal dance make me feel better? Um, and, you know, Sally Rand to the public was famous. She was rich. She had a plane. She had cars. She had houses. She was always getting married to somebody. And in fact, her life was, she was broke. She was getting sued continually. She was being dogged by tons of lawyers for money all the time. She was very lonely a lot of her life. Um, and again, this, this is the illusion of Sally Rand that it is so much a part of her life. It's that smoke and mirrors. And so it's fitting that, you know, if you're going to attempt to write about somebody like that, you better mirror their life and you better present it the same way and just give you all those pieces. And then it should coalesce by the end into this life where you say, oh, that was Sally Rand. You said in the, in the, in the conclusion of the book that, that she had discussed, I believe, on the Dick Cavett show of writing a memoir. Is there any remnants of that or is there any uh, uh, is it? Is that was that in the uh, archive that you studied? It was not. Uh, she did. She did write some of it, apparently, um, but it didn't make it there. You know, they took me down. Uh, the curator of the Chicago History Museum took me down into the basement. He said, "Do you want to see the feathers of Sally Rand? You want to see the ostrich?" I said, "Sure." So we go down to this huge walk-in uh, freezer, basically, and it's it's monstrous, and all these different things are down there. And we go up to a box and he pulls off the lid and there are her feathers from 1933. So I snap a picture and he looks up and he goes, see those? And there's a pair of glasses right above it. And I go, oh, what are those? He's like, well, those are the glasses from Leopold, the, from the Leopold Loeb murder, which again, I don't know if your listeners are aware, but a very famous murder in the 1920s that was solved by those glasses being left at the scene. And then again, back to the original question about Sally Rand, sort of her smoke and mirror life, those feathers that are there, they're supposed to be the 1933 feathers, in fact, are not. Um, she dropped, She tried to give her feathers to the museum right after the World's Fair, and they said, no, you're not going to be significant. We don't want them. Well, in the 1960s, when they asked for them, Sally Rand dropped them off. She got back in the car, and her son said, well, you know, were those really the feathers from 33? She said, no, I just picked those up and gave them to him. So there you go. <laughs> well, we've been speaking today with the author, William Hazelgrove. His new book is called Sally Rand, American Sex Symbol. It's out now from the Lions Press. It is available at all finer bookstores and libraries. William, thanks so much for talking to us today. We really thanks, appreciate William. it. Thanks, William. Uh, we're going to close this program, as we always do, with a final word from William's book. And a reminder that next week we're going to be speaking with David Camp. He's the author of Sunny Days, A History of Children's Television. So do join us every Thursday at 11 and every Sunday at 11 right here on I-94. William, thanks so much for joining us thanks, today. Thanks, William. Oh, thanks for having me. Sally's act was one of illusion, but age was habits too. When a reporter knocked on her dressing room in the 1970s, a little old lady in a neglected robe answered the door. Something about 60. A line was crossed for Sally Rand, though she kept performing, driving herself, chain-smoking, never stopping. At 62, she was still a draw and wore mini skirts and go-go boots. She embraced the counterculture with its opening up of sex and drugs, and she might have seen it as a confirmation she had been on the right course with her arrest for indecency all those years. She had been at the vanguard of a more open approach to sexuality. 
While never overtly positioning herself as a women's rights advocate, Sally Rand by her actions had pried open the lid on women's sexuality. In the 1960s, women burning their bras and embracing a more free and open approach to premarital sex was all territory Sally Rand had mined, starting with her appearance at the 1933 World's Fair. She saw her arrest as good for publicity, but the truth is every time she was arrested for indecency with the attendant publicity it brought into light the double standard America had for women regarding sex and broke down the wall just a little more. Sally Rand wore white go-go boots and a miniskirt, but probably did not smoke pot. At least there is no evidence. Her drugs of choice were designed to keep her performing. Coffee, cigarettes, maybe a few drinks to take the edge off. Besides, she was still working 40 weeks a year and didn't have time for getting high. She was still able to bring them in. Her venues had changed, though, and she played state fairs and bowling alleys. The youth culture was something new. Sally Rand did embrace the loosening up of the straitjacket society had placed on sexuality, but the new party was exclusive. She overheard two women discussing her age at a performance. One woman guessed 40 and the other guessed 60. She was realistic enough to know that popular culture had left her and that she would take the work where she could get it, but her act depended more than ever on illusion. Art is a sleight of hand ultimately, and Sally Rand's swishing fans now had more to hide despite body paint and bodysuit. The truth is there was a 62-year-old naked body behind the ostrich feathers, and the light had to be just right, and her movements had to be dead on. The illusion was now walking a thin line between the chronology of age and the magic of suggestion. There was a certain reverence for Sally that kept her packing customers in. Her figure was praised for retaining its youthful measurement. Most of the time it worked, but sometimes things just didn't go right. Sally was asked to dance at a fan ball in New York City at the Plaza Hotel. She spent $500 on some new fans, but things went badly from the start. The lighting, which was so important to the illusion of her performance, was bad. She was not wearing her bodysuit, and she had slowed down. The young girl of 1933 had a nubile body, but also the fans did move faster than the eye. Now the fans have slowed, and even though she had cut six minutes out of her routine, she was tired, and the people sitting close to the stage were flashed with images of the real Sally Rand. And there were paparazzi now. is Lumpen Radio's books and literature program, airing every Sunday and Thursday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured William Hazelgrove, author of Sally Rand, American Sex Symbol, out now from the Lions Press. This episode originally aired on January 14, 2021. I-94 is a Lumpen Radio production, with readings by Shanna Van Volt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit eye94.org. For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit lumpinradio.com.